The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli on a night when impeachment is going prime time. In a few hours, the House will begin debating two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. And today, the Justice Department's Inspector General testified the FBI was justified in opening its investigation into ties between the Trump presidential campaign and Russia, but found serious problems with the way it was conducted. That adds fuel to the partisan battles over that investigation. Plus, the Federal Reserve leads interest rates unchanged and signals it will keep them on hold through 2020 sticking to the sidelines during an election year. Well, the House Judiciary Committee begins a historic televised debate in primetime tonight on two narrowly written articles of impeachment against President Trump that accuse him of abusing the power of his office and keeping Congress from exercising its duty as a check on the executive branch. At a rally in Pennsylvania last night, Trump tried to downplay the importance of the impeachment. This is the lightest impeachment In the history of our country, by far, it's not even like an impeachment. So impeachment light. Joining me in our New York studio is Max Burns, Democratic strategist and contributor at The Daily Beast and The Independent. And in our D.C. studio, Maddie Dupler, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. So, Max, you're here. I'll start with you. First... What about President Trump's new reaction to this, the fact that the articles are so narrowly drawn, calling it impeachment light? Well, this is now going to be the narrative. Once this all passes, is Trump will say, I've never was actually impeached, <laughs> that this will be an asterisk like Barry Bonds and the home run record, that this was somehow a less legitimate impeachment because there weren't five or six articles. But in fact, I think the fact that it's a narrow impeachment makes it much stronger. We're focusing specifically on obstruction of justice and the abuse of power related to Ukraine. Uh, I know Jerry Nadler very much would have liked to have another article on Robert Mueller in there. But this is designed not just to be a strong case on the strongest points of a presidential abuse, but also something that purple state Democrats can go back to their districts and reliably sell to voters that this wasn't a fishing expedition that we looked at this exhaustively in the Intelligence Committee and on the Judiciary Committee and came away with things that we really feel are provable evidence of wrongdoing. 
Maddie, what's your take on the narrow articles of impeachment? Well, we have a saying here in D.C. that if you're talking process, you're losing. Uh, And up until Mm. this point, that was the Republican approach, talking about how we'd arrived at this point and why the president wasn't, uh, his conduct may have been uh, unseemly but not impeachable. And now you see the president, I think, pivot a little bit, recognizing that he he wants to force Democrats to explain, well, we've impeached you on one or two causes, but maybe not three or four. Uh, And he knows that that is an argument that I don't think will resonate with the American people. And I think that it is somewhat telling the cadence of the way things have unveiled here in uh, Washington also also illustrate that point, which is that you had articles of impeachment announced at 9 a.m. You had an introduction of a USMCA deal announced at 10 a.m. I mean, if you are someone watching these proceedings, it seems to me that Democratic leadership knows they need to get the impeachment ball rolling, but they also heard from their members who came back from this last Thanksgiving break who wanted to have something to show their constituents that wasn't just impeachment, was a little bit meatier, shows that the Democrats want to do something with their majority in the House. And certainly this push on USMCA, and you've seen both the House and the White House try to take credit for the agreement now, this push right after this announcement of the articles of impeachment, I think, indicates that Democrats really want to have something else to run on, something else to pivot to, because impeachment might not be the slam dunk that they initially thought it would be. And you have to remember that when we look back at history, no one really remembers until there's another impeachment how many articles there were against against Nixon or Clinton. I had to look it up myself and I keep going back to it. So but so tonight we have the Judiciary Committee, which is one of the largest panels in Congress, 41 members. They're all going to deliver five minute opening statements before debate begins Maddie, do you expect it to hold the viewers? I don't. I mean, at this point, we've kind of, I think we've reached both a little bit of uh, viewer fatigue on the proceedings because, again, most of the American people don't pay attention to what committee is holding a hearing and how it's substantially different from another committee holding a hearing. And also, you know, the American people are busy running their families. They're getting home from work. I don't know that anyone's running to their TVs to turn on the impeachment proceedings to watch Washington politicians turn on for, for several hours. But I I think that Democrats have a challenge here, which is to explain not only what it is, why what they're doing is important, but also what uh, end it will achieve. Because I think that the one thing that the American public are probably paying attention to is that some of this now is a little bit of a foregone conclusion. We always kind of assume the House would proceed uh, along these lines. It would go over to the Senate. The Senate then would probably acquit. And then guess what? We're off to the races on 2020. And the president then has the win at his back because he certainly will use that uh, as a campaign uh, talking point to say that, listen, I've been acquitted. There's no wrongdoing here. Max, what can the Democrats do to make it, let's say, more exciting? Well, I think what was absolutely right there is the idea that people are going to see essentially their own member of Congress on local TV giving their five minutes uh, and maybe a clip or two else. There's just so much content here. And we see that voters, especially Democratic primary voters, aren't really talking about impeachment that much in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. They're talking about the trade war. They're talking about college tuition. They're talking about health care. Uh, and it's it's something where Democratic voters have really made up their mind. I think we see in, in a number of polls about 80 or 85 percent of voters have already made up their mind where they sit on this. And maybe 15 percent will be interested in making a decision before this is over. Uh, the way to sell this for Democrats is to tie this directly into the fact that Donald Trump's policies 
also hurt you. I think this is something that uh, impeachment is is a bit of an academic thing, quite honestly, for voters to get. But once we get to a trial, I think voters will start paying more attention. The Senate's going to be where I think a lot of the excitement is. If you weren't moved by Fiona Hill or Professor Carlin or Professor Feldman or any of these people throwing the best stuff they had for national cameras, then it's doubtful that five minutes of speech from a congressperson you've never heard of is really going to move you to take a position on this. And And I think you can see what's happening in D.C., that those anxieties are being laid bare by what the leadership in D.C. is doing. I mean, today you had a hearing in House Ways and Means on reducing the uh, eliminating the salt cap, uh, the tax um, that was put in place by the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, something that Democrats have been talking about as priority for them on tax policy since day one. You've got Pelosi pushing to do uh, drug pricing bills. You've got this pivot to USMCA. I mean, it is obvious to me that Democrats are very worried worried that everything Max just stated, the fact that this is not necessarily going to break through, uh, that that is a concern for them. And they need to have something else that they can show before they leave for that winter break. Now, Max, you mentioned that the there might be more excitement with the Senate trial, but does it seem it, there are reports that the Senate Republicans, that there's an early consensus that they want a short impeachment trial? President Trump has said and indicated that he wants a long, dramatic trial with live witnesses. What do you think is really going to happen? Is it going to be that exciting, or are they going to try to keep it short? Yeah, this is the big split, because Mitch McConnell is dead set on doing this as quickly and quietly as possible. But we've seen before the best laid plans of the Senate when they run against Donald Trump's Twitter account and his rallies. Uh, Barred from presenting witnesses that, that the president thinks will help him, the president will conduct essentially his own trial on social media. And that runs the risk of derailing once again the Republicans' plans in the Senate to just wrap this as quickly as possible and focus very tightly. The president has even held out the idea of Rudy Giuliani testifying under oath in the Senate, which would be one of the most disastrous things. That would (laughs) almost make the case for impeachment better than Democrats could. That would be something. (laughs) Democrats are are like waiting to see if they can get Giuliani because, but that would open up, I don't even know, a whole new ball of wax, as they say. I don't know where that would go. Maddie, what do you see as far as uh, the Republicans and the Senate? So the Senate is an interesting question. I agree with Max on this, that that is certainly kind of where the spectacle is, because it's an actual trial, right? The Supreme Court is involved. All senators have to be sitting and contributing to the trial, which actually that, to me, is really the crux of the issue. When does the Senate impeachment trial happen? Because remember, when we come back in the new year, we're only a month away from the start of the Iowa caucuses. And we've got New Hampshire right after that. And you have if you're a Democrat senator who's running for president and you're all of your time is being taken up in Washington on this impeachment trial, you're not out campaigning. So I do think that Mitch McConnell has motivation to potentially have this trial dra- uh, drag out further than just those first few weeks in January. And again, I'll return to this tension between impeachment and USMCA, both are highly privileged uh, notices that are sent to the Senate in different ways, but it also means that in the Senate, where you always have a consideration about how much floor time is available, uh, it makes those considerations even more acute, and the leader will have to juggle both those concerns going into the new year and going into the start of the presidential. Right, and uh, Mitch McConnell said yesterday, at least, that uh, he couldn't get both those things done, obviously, before the break. So now we're going to turn to another fascinating 
lighting issue and also some hot testimony on Capitol Hill as the inspector general defended his report from attacks from by the president as well as the attorney general. That's coming up. And remember to download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or just by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 991. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. The Justice Department's Inspector General testified today that the FBI was justified in opening its investigation into ties between the Trump presidential campaign and Russia, but he found serious problems with the way the FBI conducted the investigation. Here he is. So many basic and fundamental errors were made by three separate handpicked investigative teams on one of the most sensitive FBI investigations after the matter had been briefed to the highest levels within the FBI. I've been talking to Maddie Dupler, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and Max Burns, Democratic strategist. Maddie, I'll, I'll start with you. It seemed as if the inspector general's testimony, it was okay, it was justified, but there were all these problems, should have satisfied both sides, but instead it just seemed to have fueled more partisan divide. Right. You nailed, uh, that was hitting the nail on the head, really. There's something for everyone to hate or something for everyone to love. Republicans certainly felt vindicated because of the amount of error that was profiled in this report. Democrats, of course, saying that Republicans who had uh, operated under the assumption that all of this was a conspiracy or a product of the deep state uh, had been vacated from, from that argument, you know, it to me, just watching the proceedings today, I was reminded of the argument over FISA to begin with, where all the libertarians were telling both Republicans and Democrats that this is a bad idea to allow the big, uh, to allow government to spy on average Americans. There will not be the protections that you argue will be there in place. I think that really, at the end of the day, they're the only people who can feel vindicated after today, which is that maybe we should be concerned about the uh, surveillance state and what it's capable of and what we actually do or don't know about it, because it certainly is the case, or I think that the question was raised when looking at this report, which is how expansive are these practices? And if they are, in fact, uh, able to run amok, as Republicans are alleging, is there any way to really uh, allow for any kind of transparency or accountability there? Uh, And I think that a lot of the errors uh, detailed with the FBI's proceedings raise a question about whether or not the average American is protected uh, from this kind of surveillance. But Max, I have to say that if every time, in fact, mo- in most trials, when there's an FBI investigation, you learn that the defense objects because the FBI wasn't, the warrant wasn't based on justifiable reasons. That happens a lot. But is this more than that? No, I think, and Michael Horowitz, to his credit, Michael Horowitz deserves a medal for going into this as a an apolitical, respected investigator thrown really into a firestorm of partisanship in the Senate. Uh, 
what we saw there was Horowitz say very clearly that this investigation was not predicated on the Steele dossier, that the FISA warrants were handled correctly, even though there were some errors in how some of the information was presented or omitted. And as Maddie said, those of us who were civil libertarians and concerned about the expansion of the national security state have had concerns about that for quite a while. What's shocking here is that two weeks ago, the Republicans in the Senate who were tearing Michael Horowitz apart today were on Fox News saying the Horowitz report was going to blow the lid off the deep state, that this was going to show all of the wrongdoing done by the Obama administration and by Democrats to get Donald Trump. And we've come away with none of that. And in response, now they're saying, actually, just wait for John Durham's report. That's going to be the real report. And so the goalposts move yet again as reality encroaches on these high-level conspiracy theories. And Maddie, yesterday we saw the interview with the Wall Street Journal that the Attorney General, Bill Barr, did. Uh, what's your take on his just sort of putting down his own Inspector General's report? Right. And this is why I return to the notion that I don't know that any of these proceedings, impeachment, the uh, report from the IG, any of this is helping Washington's uh, viewpoint um, um, unto the American public, which is that I don't think the average American knows the difference between Bill Barr or Mr. Horowitz or Dunham. <laughs> they, they don't pay attention. They see everyone as a Washington bureaucrat. So this notion, as Max brought up, that Republicans parsing who has the latest talking point that aligns with what they've been saying for years or Democrats arguing that it, one conspiracy is vacated so all of the uh, allegations are false. I don't think Americans are following this, nor do they want to. They want to know who in power in Washington is doing things that benefits them, that improves their individual circumstances. And I don't think the more oxygen that is devoted to these kinds of political meanderings, I think the the less uh, Americans are going to pay attention to that. And, you know, I bring that up because this is December of 2019 and next year it's going to be all about who is going to deliver for the American public. We are going to be in the middle of an election cycle where that is the question that candidates need to be answering. And I think we've seen a little bit about of this from Democratic, uh, from Democrats running in the primary too, where it took a long time for some of these firebrands to really come down hard on impeachment. And even then, there's really no uh, strong consensus from everyone running in the Democratic primary about how all of these things should unfold. And again, I think it's because there's a little bit of fatigue for some of these American voters who are watching the circus in Washington and what they want to know is who's going to deliver from them, and they don't think either side is capable at this I'm point. I'm fatigued. Exactly. I am fatigued, <laughs> and this is my job to listen to the news and to yep. cover the news. And yet, you know, so much is happening that, and true, come, come election time, is anyone going to remember Michael Horowitz's name? Nope. Nope. <laughs> and, and nope, I think we can both agree on that. And so that's the question, right? Is like, what do Democrats do with this then? If the, if the ball is in Democrats' court where they really feel like they're vindicated by this, what do they do with it? Because at the same time, they've got these competing priorities. If, if, if impeachment is the thing that's going to stick, how does that tie into this testimony that's happening with the IG today? It's, it's almost like too many balls in the air. And we already know politicians don't multitask particularly well. And when you're going into the last couple days of session where everyone's here in Washington trying to get the last word, I'm not not sure that this benefits uh, Democrats who really felt that the wind was at their back going into this week. It's exhausting, Max. It is. And that's the real shame of it, is that in this sort of scandal a day government that we have now, uh, we 
have failed to differentiate the circus from the substantive. I mean, the fact is what Bill Barr is doing at the moment is deeply morally troubling. Uh, the politicization of the Department of Justice is a worrisome issue that should concern Democrats and Republicans. I mean, Bill Barr stood up and said it's routine for campaigns to have foreign contacts. That's not true. That the Obama administration spied on Donald Trump. That's not true. And he read this report. He knew these things were not true when he said them. And Bill Barr's willingness, more than any attorney general in history, to play personal defender of the president is something that creates a culture of abuse that will take more than one administration to clean out. I have to say that, you know, as an attorney, he is the nation's top law enforcement official. And I know he has said that, you know, you can't keep politics out of this office, but you'd like to see politics out of the office as much as possible. Um, Maddie, do you think we'll be talking about uh, A.G. Barr come uh, election time? I think we'll be talking about whomever the convenient foil is for the campaign of the moment. And, you know, I say that because I, I think what Max is saying, it resonates deeply with me about how do you hold the chief law enforcement officer accountable? But it resonates with me because over the last several years, we have struggled with this question. You know, when it was President Obama and Holder and the Fast and the Furious and Republicans felt like they really couldn't get answers out of, out of the Department of Justice either. It used to be, and by used to be, I might be referring, you know, 200 years back now, but it used to be that this balance of powers thing worked out okay and that Congress could get answers out of the executive branch. If executive branch didn't answer to them, Congress would withhold uh, the purse strings. It would use its power in order to do so. And we've basically just abandoned all of the uh, requirements that are in place for the different branches of government to be able to create transparency in governance here in Washington, D.C. And that is an abdication that both parties are responsible for. And this is the end result. So until we have Congress that really does want to act, and that probably requires a linking of arms across parties to hold different executive officers accountable, I think that we're in for a long road of this continual kind of practice. Max, I wonder, now the Supreme Court is considering on Friday whether to take up the case of the, of the Trump subpoena from the Manhattan DA for his tax records. I wonder if that's going to give us some indication if when they decide about the separation of powers and if and we might be put back on course perhaps, or not back on course, but just headed in the right direction again about separation of powers. Yeah, and it's in the Supreme Court again where Richard Nixon really met his end and, and found that he could no longer hold the ground that he was trying to hold the difference is we have a very different Supreme Court now than we had in that time. I mean, we already have concerns about the legitimacy of the court when we look at, for example, Justice Kennedy cutting a deal with Donald Trump to have Brett Kavanaugh put on the short list for a Supreme Court. Uh, when we look at the decisions that Kavanaugh's made and the things he's hinted at, at the at dismantling the administrative state, at the power of the executive almost above and beyond the legislative, we have to wonder what will happen if one of these decisions comes down that says, that's fine, the president can just deny subpoenas entirely and, and that the legislative has no legal authority to hold the president accountable at all. Where do we go from there? And what does that mean the next time a Democrat is in office and has uh, an investigation against them? The difference with Obama, of course, with Fast and the Furious is that for all their complaining, Obama eventually gave those documents up. 
they never claimed a blanket immunity that, that is happening now. This is unprecedented. It is true. The, the blanket immunity claims are unprecedented, and it will be up to the Supreme Court. We'll, we'll see what happens if they even take the case. Coming up on Sound Up, we're going to be talking about some new polls that came out. It's about Super Tuesday and the state of California, which has heavy delegate counts. And remember that you can download the Bloomberg Sound on podcasts on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. It's called Super Tuesday for a reason. 16 states vote on March 3rd. In two of those states, California and Texas, allot the highest number of delegates to the Democratic candidates. A new poll from CNN and SSRS shows Democratic presidential candidates Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren are running neck and neck for the top spot in California. I've been talking to Maddie Doppler, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, and Max Burns, Democratic strategist. So, Max, the poll found Biden with 21 percent support in California, followed by Sanders with 20 percent and Warren with 17 percent. Pete Buttigieg was fourth in nine percent and all the others were polling in single digits. Is it too soon to worry about California? I think so, as evidenced by the fact that just last Thursday we had a, a Berkeley, California poll that had Warren at 22 and Sanders at 24 and Biden only at 12 or 13. And one of the worries with all of this is we've really turned this primary into the stock market where we evaluate every single one or two digit shift in candidates and try and figure out why that happened. It would be the equivalent of writing a news story every time Amazon stock loses a dollar or gains a dollar. And I worry that we're focusing so much on the noise of the statistics that when, when is the last time we've had a conversation about an actual policy uh, on the trail? When has there been substantive coverage of uh, what Pete Buttigieg's plan for Medicare for All Who Want It is, what Elizabeth Warren's plan is for education? Instead, we're asking these candidates, what do you think about your poll numbers? And there's only so many answers you can give to that before you're just repeating yourself. Maddie, is there is there a way, is there a place for poll numbers, and have we placed too much emphasis on them? Well, you know, Max is describing, I think, the presidential race of all of our dreams, those of us <laughs> who care about policy. That would be wonderful if these guys had to explain day in and day out, you know, what they wanted uh, to see for the vision of health care uh, or, or, or economics for this country. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the importance of polling, yes, polling is kind of important. But when we like what we saw in 2016 is that the polls don't always get it right. So I think a better question to be asking is, you know, how much do these polls even can they be trusted? at this stage in the game. Now, the interesting thing about Super Tuesday is that it really does have an outsized impact this year compared to years past. Having California and Texas, uh, which have a huge number of delegates uh, available on Super Tuesday, I mean, I think something like 3,000 delegates are being allotted on that one day alone. So I think the question becomes less about polling and more about what is your strategy to maximize your impact when you only have that one day to uh, to show your support. Now, that could work 
in favor of someone potentially like, you know, I don't know, maybe a Pete Buttigieg, who the question is if he does well in Iowa, but doesn't look like he's going to get any traction in South Carolina, is the fact that everything's happening in one day benefits someone like him and handicaps someone who has more expansive reach uh, amongst Democrat uh, Democrat uh, primary voters. You know, I don't know. I think that's a really a more interesting question that people who study this should be asking. So. Max, will the polls start shifting after Iowa and New Hampshire, or will it take Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina before we see a meaningful shift? Because right now it just seems to be as if they're trading places between first, second, and third. Yeah, I think there will definitely be a shift after Iowa. I think we saw it back in 2008 to make sort of a strained comparison that Hillary Clinton was up 22 points on Barack Obama in South Carolina until the Iowa caucus. And when Obama proved his viability and won that caucus, within a week it had switched from her being up 22 to her being down 10. And that's something she never recovered from. So I think what voters are looking for, and voters, I think, if you want a poll that shows your candidate at a certain number, you can probably find one. Uh, But we're lacking that one real-world poll that counts, which is Election Day. And once we have that, you'll start to see some of the minor candidates drop, and it'll really give a test of who's viable in the long run. You know what I also uh, think? You hear all the national polls. Any candidate can beat, any Democratic nominee right now could beat President Trump. But shouldn't we be just looking at the polls in those swing states that made the difference last time? I mean, that's where it really counts. The national numbers don't count because... Hillary Clinton won by millions of votes. Candidates are definitely focused on the swing states this time around. I mean, you're going to get a lot more love to Pennsylvania and Michigan than you had in 2016. And the numbers are are trending the right way. I, President Trump had a rally yesterday in Pennsylvania where he's at 43 percent, which is a dangerous place for an incumbent president to be. And he only won that by about 30,000 votes. And we see that the messaging on these campaigns is focusing really heavily on manufacturing going into recession, on Trump's trade war for farmers, on the way that tariffs are raising prices for consumers. That's become real kitchen table issues. And I think that's supplanted in some ways over the last few weeks, these discussions on Medicare for all. And this is where the policy will matter because it's where the rubber hits the road. If you look at Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, there is an expectation that they will not fare as well as the the national economy in 2020 because they are so sensitive to the arenas in which Trump has taken uh, a an orthodox approach. Uh, I'm talking about the trade wars, of course, when it comes to U.S. and China. Uh, how that is resolved may be really the issue that dictates how the next year goes and whether or not uh, the Trump campaign is able to repeat its its victories in those states. And it will be interesting, I think, if the policy that matters the most is trade, because I think that has been a struggle for Democrats to articulate for many, many years. I mean, this notion that Democrats are anti-NAFTA is somewhat new, but now you have uh, Speaker Pelosi and Donald Trump, who, again, has been accused of many things, but one of them is being this populist that has thrown Republican free trade orthodoxy out the window, vying for uh, credit on 
the ones who got the new USMCA done. I mean, that to me is a fantastic new realignment and how both Democrats and Republicans have been talking about trade. So to me, that's the most interesting question on policy moving into next year. One is how we find resolution on some of these tensions that are uh, unequivocally creating drag in the domestic economy. But secondly, how politicians then maneuver there. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for Democrats to go into some of these states if there is a rebound on a trade deal and argue that things aren't going well for voters there, because I think that voters who are already either inclined to be loyal to the president or uh, feel that their circumstances have improved will likely not be responsive to that argument. Coming up, we're going to be talking, turning to the Fed, which left interest rates unchanged and signal it's going to keep them on hold through 2020. That's coming up on Sound On. I'm June Grasso. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. The Federal Reserve decided not to raise interest rates after three earlier cuts. Chair Jerome Powell said the U.S. economy is in a good place and monetary policy is in a good place. He strongly suggested rates won't move anytime soon. In order to move rates up, I would want to see inflation that's persistent uh, and that's significant. A significant move up in inflation that's also persistent uh, before raising rates to, to address Uh, inflation concerns. That's my view. Democratic strategist Max Burns is in our New York studio, and Maddie Duffler, senior fellow of the National Taxpayers Union, is in our D.C. studio. So, Maddie, this is your bailiwick. (laughs) I love Fed Day. I love it. (laughs) Well, many people at Bloomberg love Fed Day. (laughs) I know. We are a strange brand of folk. Um, so the interesting thing, actually, probably the most noteworthy thing was that soundbite that you played from the chairman there. Going into the meeting today, the expectation was that the Fed would not budge on rates. And that's exactly the outcome that we got. Now, this is the last Fed meeting for the month, for the year, for the decade. So there was a lot of conversation about, like, well, what's the Fed going to tell us about the next year in the next several years? Well, that one question about inflation, I think, was the big one. We know that the Fed wants to hit its target of 2% and inflation has consistently lagged that. But the question was, what is the Fed going to do about it, right? Is it just going to sit back and wait and see if the inflation ever takes off? Um, And, you know, the thing that we've watched over the last two years has been what the Fed will do on rates uh, and U.S.-China trade policy. Those have been the two major things that can move uh, the economy and can move the stock market. And have I mean, the, the hypersensitivity is almost unparalleled. If you remember last December where we had that huge stock market dive, it was a result of the Fed saying, hey, I think we're going to go forward with red, rate hikes. So to have just one year pass and the Fed saying we're in a good spot, we don't need to move uh, the rates in any direction, uh, some took that as uh, questioning whether or not the Fed had moved too too aggressively to begin with. Now, the chairman answered a question on that point and essentially said, no, we really think we made the right call here. And because the inflation target lags, because we see so many other things that uh, indicate strength in the economy, we feel we're in a good spot. So now the question is, what happens next year, right? We've talked a lot about how it's a presidential year. We know that, again, this president, who is unorthodox in many ways, uh, one of those is his interactions with the Fed and his consistent haranguing of the Fed and how he wants uh, the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates. You know, that has all but been taken off the table by this press conference today, 
But at the same time, the chairman essentially said, we see the economy moving along next year um, in pretty strong strokes. So that's good news for the president. So it'll be interesting to see how and if the White House reacts to uh, the chairman's comments today, because essentially well, what it said was that it's a good uh, it's a good outlook for the president running for reelection. That's probably Pro- the most surprising thing about the Fed today is that Donald Trump did not tweet about mm-hmm. Jerome Powell. So in There's about still a minute- time. <laughs> But we've but, got big primetime TV coming up. We think that's probably what the president's Twitter account will be focused on, don't true. you think, Max? But <laughs> but I have to say that you know I've listened to or read a political article that said that the Fed has actually lifted Trump's 2020 prospects because of what it's done for the economy, despite the fact that uh, President Trump does not seem to be uh, in in favor of his Fed chair anymore, Max. And I think this raises really interesting questions to me uh, on a larger scale that I think people like David Graeber and Bernie Sanders' team have talked about, which is we're starting to see classical economics of Adam Smith that has gone on for so long suddenly start to struggle with a world of automation and interconnectedness like we have now. Like, for example, these the idea of inflation fighting as the primary purpose of the central banks I mean, we we see that falling employment no longer drives up wages, uh, that we that Europe is printing money drastically to try and draw inflation up and things are actually moving the other direction. But the the actual policy approaches that we've taken have not really taken into account how how they don't seem to work. And if there's any other science where we just keep doing the same things, even after they've proven not only not predictive, but counterproductive, uh, economics may stand on its own in that respect. So we'll I don't have to share leave that Max- for another day. We'll have All to leave right. that for another day. We've run out of time. Maddie <laughs> and Max, you make a great team. You even sound great together. Thank you both. That's Maddie Duffler, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and Max Burns, Democratic strategist. We'll have you back to talk about this again. Coming up, just remember to download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.